0: We are joined by four distinguished authors of the new Latrobe Asia brief on Australia China relations. This is the launch tonight. Finding the elusive balance is the name of it. It sometimes requires a little bit of artifice to think of an, of an, uh, an event to peg an event, uh, a uh, Latrobe Asia event. To. In, in this case, Australia China relations are um, almost never out of the news. Um, you can take your pick. Uh, from the South China Sea to the South Pacific uh, to events uh, here at home and even now, um, in recent weeks, to campuses on Australia where the theme uh, is ongoing. So um, I don't have to worry about the topicality uh, of the the, um, subject uh, or indeed of the expertise of my distinguished uh, fellow authors. Uh, Nick Bisley is the Dean of Humanities at, at La Trobe Uh, Diane Hu uh, is the um, deputy director of the Australia-China Center at the um, Beijing Foreign Studies University. Uh, Rowan Kalick, who is an advisor to uh, La Asia um, and also former correspondent for the Australian uh, in Beijing and a distinguished author on China in his own right. Uh, And then last, but certainly by no means least, um, on my right, uh, Professor John Fitzgerald, now of Swinburne University, formula, formerly uh, of Melbourne University, and also LaTrobe, Trobe, um, one of Australia's most distinguished uh, China scholars. I'll be coming to them uh, in, in sequence to ask them just to reprise their key arguments uh, from the brief, but I'll just start with a few dot points um, of my own. And I think there's nothing particularly... Uh, eye-catching about the, the key findings, uh, but rather to point out that, uh, that Australia, the dilemma that Australia finds itself in is usually characterised in terms of a three-way, a triangular relationship, not just with China, but with China uh, and the United States. And I think that's, um, that's certainly valid, uh, that, that triangular lens. But sometimes I think it tends to take the focus off the bilateral relationship and Australia's need, I think, at the policy level, but also at the kind of organic people-to-people uh, level, to think of the relationship in its own terms. And I think that's a challenge uh, for all of us, uh, but including for the, for the government. And I think although that dilemma has become particularly uh, acute and in some ways uncomfortable in recent years with frictions also characterising the relationship as well as cooperation, particularly in the economic space, um, But that, I think, can can, uh, tend to cloud the the more uh, unusual truth that Australia-China relations... Australia has actually had a very lucky period. It's often characterised as the lucky country. Uh, But I think particularly so in its relations with the United States, where security has tended to be provided relatively cheaply through the alliance for the last two decades. There haven't been many demands made on Australia in its own region, uh, and with China, too, uh, on the back of a, a, an unprecedented commodities boom that has fueled uh, Australia's economy and made, uh, made it uh, unique amongst the uh, developed economies in avoiding recession for, for over a generation. Um, an extraordinary record. But there is a risk, I think, attached to that, that because Australia's had it so good, once it starts to move off that sweet spot, it becomes a little more... Uh, challenging. And the final point I'll just um, uh, highlight from my own uh, work is to look at the university sector, where I think that there is a particular interest in Australia-China relations. As I said, uh, we've had um, events in in Queensland over the last week that have highlighted some of the uh, new and rather disturbing uh, risks on on, on campuses in terms of protests that have have turned uh, violent. But I think now that I'm joined by distinguished academic uh, colleagues, and I'll count uh, Rowan as an honorary academic in that sense, Uh, I'd also like to make use of their expertise as academic practitioners uh, for their insights on on Australia-China relations as they play out on campus. So without further ado, um, I'd like to turn to Rowan first. If if you can just give a pithy uh, summary of your your key findings and arguments from the brief.
1: Thanks very much, Ewan, and uh, good evening, everyone. It's terrific to see so many people here on this warm evening in Melbourne, and uh, uh, particularly uh, um, in the audience are many people who are true experts on China. Uh, I'm making three points. The first is um, it's important to broaden the question of what is China. Um, The Communist Party of China has tended to claim ownership of China Uh, but um, I would uh, question that. I would say that uh, there are quite a few Chinas and there is an historic China, a cultural China, a China of uh, many diverse peoples Um, that isn't encompassed within the People's Republic of China, which for 70 years, come October the 1st, has been ruled by the one party. And uh, uh, so I think it's important to particularly to bear this in mind in terms of uh, uh, addressing our own ethnic Chinese population, which is extremely diverse in its origins and and its attitudes, Um, Chinese people are particularly individualistic. And most importantly, uh, its members here are Australians. Uh, And we need to understand the various Chinas better. We haven't been good at doing that. Almost no top decision-makers... in public life in Australia, in business, uh, government and and media and so on, have experience of working, living or studying in China or Asia more broadly. My second point, um, uh, we're having this evening because it matters, because this is an important relationship and because there have been questions about this relationship. In recent times, what's changed between the PRC and Australia in recent years? What has changed (laughs) is that China has entered a new era under Xi Jinping. So, Xi's philosophy, his socialism with Chinese characteristics for a new era. Uh, The stress that I think is interesting in this is a new era, not the old era of uh, Hyde. uh, hide your real strengths and bide your time under Deng Xiaoping. Now China has changed and uh, power has been personalised and centralised under Xi and uh, he hasn't taken a step backwards. He's a very successful and lucky politician. Um, China remains what uh, our friend Feng calls a lonely rising power. But it's begun, especially through Xi's Belt and Road Initiative, to seek to weaponize its economic rise and to use that to ratchet up its global role. And as it does this, it's, it tests its economic partners to ensure they're on side. Uh, in Australia's case, we passed a, a, an early test in that uh, pre-Xi Xi test, I have to say, when... Uh, John Howard declared China a market economy and that enabled us to get to the starting gate to negotiate, which happened for 10 years, uh, a very comprehensive free trade agreement. Uh, uh, But recently we've failed some of the tests. Extradition treaty, not passed. Uh, Huawei, not allowed to participate in 5G. Uh, have we signed China's Belt and Road Memorandum of Understanding? No, although the government here has, Victoria has. And um, uh, China's uh, view of history, uh, the PRC's view of history, uh, remains focused on the century of foreign humiliation from 1840, the Opium War, to 1949, the Revolution. Uh, And in that context, it reviews... Speeches and writings of uh, of uh, people overseas who are engaged with China for phrases that it might perceive as cause for grievance as signs of demonstration that foreign humiliation persists. Th- my third point in these circumstances, institutional engagement is difficult because engaging with any institution in China means engaging with the party essentially because behind every institution must stand the party um, uh, but uh, however, uh, also, however difficult it is to get around the side of that personal uh, and business links are necessary and desirable uh, and our, our relationship with China is a thick one Gareth Evans, a former foreign minister, used to complain that we don't have sufficient ballast in our relationship with Indonesia. We have that ballast with China. And thankfully, this is nothing nothing like the USSR in the Cold War. Um, Surprisingly, although our population is the world's 55th largest, we are China's seventh biggest trading partner. We are an increasingly... Uh, ready, educator of, and uh, pleasant and safe tourism destination for middle class Chinese. Uh, we're a country where Chinese businesses can learn how to operate in a Western environment and where Chinese migrants are very welcome. Indeed, probably after New Zealand, Australia has become home to more such migrants compared with population than any country in the world. And uh, China itself has 39 Australian studies centres at its universities, more than in the rest of the world together, run by terrific people, including who down here, (laughs) uh, who really know a lot about Australia and uh, are thoroughly engaged with us. So this is is, uh, uh, what we need to treasure and enhance in the relationship, and I believe People in this room are doing that, and we're going to keep going ahead, whatever happens at the political level. Thank you.
0: Thanks for that, Rowan. Um, Dan Hu, over to you.
2: Thank you. Uh, first of all, I'd like to thank, you and, uh, sorry, thank Rowan for the kind words, and... Uh, I can't say how engaged I have been with Australia, but I have come to Melbourne for the last two, three holidays. So um, I'd just like to add a, a, a little bit about my bio, and which probably explains why I contributed a piece like that and why I'm here today. For the past five years, I've spent quite some time on China-Australia bilateral events, including being Chinese delegate and also speaker to all three bilateral events targeting the young people, starting with China-Australia Millennial Project and Australia-China Youth Dialogue, which uh, Professor John McCann's son, Harry co-founded, as well as Australia-China Emerging Leaders Summit. and Late last year, Roy and I met each other again at the 1.5-track China-Australia High-Level Dialogue headed by former Prime Minister Howard and ex-Foreign Minister Li Zhao Xin. What I want to say is that it always shocked me on those occasions that how little we know about each other, yet how much we want to. But we always like to know each other in our own terms and within our own framework. In that spirit, um, I try to. This is exactly what I try to do through this contribution and perhaps being here today. Is so I to channel this understanding by sharing with the Australian audience a little bit from my own persuasion. Is how things are perceived by the Chinese and perhaps how the perception and also the gap in our perceptions fit into the trouble and conundrum we we find ourselves in today. So the original topic of my contribution is why is China pissed with Australia? And (laughs) you kindly (laughs) modified that for me. So in the podcast, um, Matt asked me, is the sentiment really that strong? Yes and no. An often-quoted indicator, for example, would be an online survey by Global Times' website in December 2017, which shows 8,589, or 59%, of the 14,441 respondents voted Australia as the most unfriendly country to China in 2017, while India came second with 1,967 votes and the U.S. third with only 1,571 Of course, that was 18 months ago, and I'm sure that today U.S. would easily beat Australia in that list. But is it a true reflection of the public sentiment at that time? Perhaps not, because the sampling was largely selective in that the survey was done on the website of Global Times. So it was really targeting the Global Times readers, not the general public. But I think it is a good example of how easily the public sentiment, in our opinion, can be swayed by the most recent events. Because the survey was done immediately after Prime Minister, former Prime Minister sorry, Malcolm Turnbull declared in both English and Chinese that the Australian people have stood up. So that was the timing. Surveys like this really don't bother me that much. What started to make me worry is really around the same time, friends, colleagues, uh, most of whom are really well-educated, middle-income, started to come to me and ask, "Why has Australia become anti-China?" and start to give second thought to their travel or education decisions. In that sense, people's perception has changed, and many, um, I'm afraid, may not come around. I'm afraid for quite some time. So. because of time limit, I'm going to cut it short, and if you're interested, you can uh, read, uh, there's quite some, technicalities in my contributions, was just really making the point that if we track foreign investment policy changes across the advanced economies during the past five years, we will find that Australia stand out as being the first one to effect legislative and institutional changes against China. And the timing was about 18 months ahead of ahead of all G7 countries. So when we put all this together uh, with other decisions like Huawei, it really poses little surprise that Australia is perceived in China as spearheading an anti-China campaign. Um, Of course, there are good reasons for that. If we have time, we can come to that later. And really, those reasons and sophistications are what we have been trying very hard to push in China instead of summarizing a country as anti-China and starting to shout. But back to what we're going to talk about today, I'd like to summarize by raising two points. I think two things are extremely important. One is prioritize and strategize, because no one can pick all the fights. China count, Australia count. Two, uh, keep the debate informed and rational. And that's why, again, I'd like to thank Guin and also my co-panelists, but most importantly, the audience for coming today by showing interest in this topic. Thank you.
0: Great. Thank you, Houdan. Um, Professor John Fitzgerald,
3: uh, what were your key points? Uh, one would be that I'd urge you to read Hudan's paper, which is an evidence-based analysis of Australia being a bit ahead of the pack globally in introducing legislation concerning China. Um, I think we could follow up the conversation really from this very fine paper and ask why that's the case I just my paper's on values Um, but I think I'd just like to follow up on that one point in this way I think those of us at this table are all of us people who want to engage more and more fully with China we're not the China enemy school and there aren't many of that persuasion in Australia I think there are in the United States, but I don't think so here. Let me put it this way. It's a bit like back in the 70s when I was growing up. As young kids, we could go out and buy a jalopy for $1,000, jump in, hit those back roads, no seatbelts, no nothing, and have a great time. And we did. We hitchhiked and carried on in these giant machines that hurtled around the roads, and many of us ended up dead. (coughs) Australia introduced seatbelt legislation and then made it compulsory, and it was ahead of the world in doing so. And I'd like to suggest that's a kind of appropriate analogy of what I think is happening here, that Australia's been careering along the relationship with China at a great pace without any regard to its national sovereignty or security, <clears throat> and then when Xi Jinping's come along and said, hey, we hate capitalists, uh, we're not going to go down the reform road, we're finished with opening, basically. The opening reform period is over. This is the new era. People said, whoa, we could see a few casualties up ahead. Let's introduce some legislation. Let's see what we can do to prevent us having further accidents as we go forward. Now, those seat belt, that seatbelt legislation didn't stop anyone driving, but we're a lot safer driving than we used to be. And I think that's what's happening in this country at the present time. I mean, metaphor's not an explanation. It's just a way to describe how I understand what's going on. And in this respect, I'd just like to draw to your attention the place of values and why they matter. Because throughout the opening and reform period, successive Australian governments, mostly conservative but some Labour, basically said we can set values aside and just get on with trade and business. Well, when Xi Jinping came along and said, this is what we believe, it's really clear, we're Marxist-Leninists, and we don't believe in this liberal democracy nonsense, lock up all the lawyers, and he did, you know, 300 lawyers arrested very early on in his administration. Anyone in the rights activist area, non-profits and NGOs, basically um, shut down draconian legislation inhibiting their actions and so on. The question arises for a country like Australia, well, can we go on operating as we did Assuming that China is moving towards rule of law, is towards having an open and inclusive civil society, is likely to have a, not a free press, but a, a freer press. We weren't expecting democracy. I'm not sure democracy would work in China, certainly not the kind we have here. <clears throat> but there is an expectation that China was moving towards a sort of rules based, predictable order and away from the old Maoist style I'm the guy, I tell you what to do, uh, I'm in charge. But that is what Xi Jinping has done, and it alerted many people in Australia to the risks of going forward without a seatbelt. So progressively, we're looking at different areas of legislation uh, and different initiatives we can undertake to look at what's happening in our universities, in our media, in our political parties and government, just to make sure, as we head on down this ever-expanding highway, presumably at ever greater speeds and with even more sophisticated cars, that we won't come a cropper, that we'll... Uh, Will survive, and, and values are an important part of this debate because that's what's been highlighted with Xi coming to power. Nothing else really has changed. Uh, basically, the economy in China is still, you know, chuffing along at six point two percent. Not great, but wow. Most other countries would die for that. <clears throat> and um, there are other issues around China we could discuss. I don't propose to here. But my point is this: what has risen is that Xi Jinping has a vision. Uh, which basically says, don't forget our original vision. We are communists. That's what we're here to do. That's what we do. Wang This is his sort of famous phrase. And <clears throat> basically it means we are who we are. We're communists. Who are you? It's up to us to say we're not. We're actually liberal democrats. We believe in a free press, rule of law, and say it very, very clearly so there's no confusion. We're not trying to create an argument. We're saying that's you, this is us. Now, how can we negotiate a relationship going forward, understanding, rather, not putting our values aside, but putting them on the table and saying, now, how do we go forward safely into the future with a strong engagement with China? Thank
0: you. Thank you, John.
4: Uh, Nick, over to
0: you.
3: (coughs) Thanks, Ewan, um,
4: and thank you all for being here on what I think Rowan very charitably described as a warm Melbourne evening. (laughs) (laughs) we will take as read. Um, I'm I'm going to talk a little bit about what's in my paper and a little bit about things that have happened since, because it strikes me how, um, reading it again yesterday, thinking about this evening, um, we wrote it a couple of months ago. It feels like I wrote it about a year ago, um, because things are moving so very swiftly in our region um, and in sort of international relations more generally. So I'm, I'm adding a little bit that's not in there, but if I had my time again, it's what I'd write right now if they forced us to. Um, <clears throat> but to, be, to begin, in some respects, following on, it's very useful to follow on from, from John's comments, because I think if you look back at how Australia has approached China really once John Howard figured out that the China story was a real one in 1997, uh, the basic sort of... Deal that we fig- the, the way we figured out how to manage with the P- manage our relationship with the PRC was a kind of policy compartmentalization where we focused on the things that worked well business economics trade and we parceled up all of the complex issues around rights democracy our alliance with the US in a box we put it over here and we didn't talk about it in public at all um, and really from the late 90s through until probably four you know, really you know let's say around 2010 or thereabouts that worked pretty well because the nature of the economic relationship on the one hand meant that everyone there was very little you know, it was very little problematic in those terms we hadn't been aware as john said i think that that metaphor is quite a good one everything seemed good rosy no problems um, and equally politically we could still sit there and uh, and and look at China and see what we wanted to see in where China may be going under Hu Jintao. That's to say the kind of liberal optimism, not necessarily that China would democratise, but that, that, that growing, a growing middle class, growing prosperity, would act as a kind of anchor on or, or a set of constraints around an assertive, authoritarian China, that this country was going to go down the path that everyone else was supposed to go down, a la kind of 90s liberal optimism so we could you know making that kind of compartmentalization was not a tricky thing to do of course now um, i think after a few experiments since you know rudd tried in 2009 to pull a bit some of the interesting politics out of the box in his speech at bedar malcolm turnbull tried in 2017 um, we've realized we need to rethink this but we haven't figured out certainly from an international policy point of view how to do this, and we, and I think we are still in a situation where, um, internationally speaking, I think we don't know how to formulate a policy towards China and towards the region um, which squares our political and strategic concerns with our economic interests. I think when, when you think about how John was describing a set of um, safety measures, so to speak, they're all domestic. At the international level, we haven't yet made that step. So what I try to do in the paper is then how do we when we're thinking about how we reformulate or recalibrate our relations with China, what are, the th- what are the key things we need to sort of fix on to then chart a slightly different course from where we've been heading? Uh, and I think one... Uh, there's a couple of clear points. I mean, one, I think China is not going to become less confident and less assertive, even if Xi Jinping were to, to disappear tomorrow from the stage and a slightly less sharp-edged, slightly less authoritarian leadership of the party were to take its place... You're not going to see a China resile from its sense of its place in the world and a desire to to reconfigure its region and the world eventually in line with its its interests. Um, and of course, I think no one now I think is at the delusion that the the, the, the Chinese Communist Party is going to liberalise the political system in China. That that a pretty strong one-party authoritarian system is there at least for the for the duration. So that's sort of principle one or, or kind of assumption one we have to put on the table. The second, I think, is that we have to recognise that the People's Republic of China is going to be a rule maker in our region. It is going to build institutions, it's going to set standards, it's going to set rules, and some of those are going to be, make us pretty uneasy. And that's not to say, and I don't think for a moment, that we see in uh, uh, the PRC a vision for a region that's got a thick set of values around it you don't see, I think, at the moment, in the CCP, uh, sorry, sorry, in the PRC, sort of foreign policy, a desire to remake the world in line with Chinese Communist Party values. In fact, if anything, the the, the opportunity for Australia and the rest of the world with a confident, strong China lies in focusing on the UN system and a strong conception of. Sovereign equality and how we navigate different sort of pluralistic system of values. Um, third assumption, I think, is that the United States' influence in the region is likely to continue to decline. Now, that's not to say it's going to fall off a cliff and it's going to disappear, but the U.S. is not going to be the kind of rulemaker or uncontested rulemaker it was in the past. And then the third, so the fourth piece that makes all of this, I think, that bit more complex, is that. All of this is overlaid with nascent great power rivalry and a kind of twin revisionism in the regional order. And The twin revision, the the, the two revisionist powers are on the one hand, you have a revisionist China, and I I don't mean that to say that it's a boo word, but a China that wants to revise the international dispensation. But you've also got, surprisingly, in the United States revisionist power that wants to walk away from the basic liberal principles of the international economy as they've functioned for at least the past sort of, six or seven decades. So for a country like Australia, that's profoundly unsettling, that the, that the context in which we have to figure out how we chart our, our relations with China is one that's got that layer on top of it. Uh, how do we do this? Now, I don't have an answer, um, but I've got a couple of ideas just about what are the principles, and I'll finish very quickly on these and then we can unpack them if we want, or we'll discuss them further in the Q&A. One is Australia. I think Australia has to put its interests first and its values second in its international policy. Now, that's not to say values disappear down the drain, um, but when, we can, when we're negotiating with not just China, but with our regional partners, our interests have to come ahead of our values. Our values do need to be clear, and they need to be on the table, and there are ways in which the international system as it exists provides us with with instruments and tools to do that. But I think it's a fool's errand to put values first and to put values ahead of interests. Um, Second, the regional order needs to be adjusted. China needs to find some space. There are lots of A words which are boo words in international relations, like appeasement and accommodation. And I'm not talking necessarily about that. And and I'm not certainly arguing we should acquiesce to everything that 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 the party state wants. But it is fundamentally, I think, unimaginable that a country of China's scale, wealth, civilizational influence should simply sit there and expect to be a price-taker in an international system. And so the trick is to figure out how do we reduce the transaction cost for a country like Australia and for a broader, liberal, liberally inclined international system in ways you know, to, to, to accommodate, um, to some degree... Uh, a, a research in China. And finally, Australia's policy to the region has to be multilaterally oriented. We have to work with countries in the region and we have to ensure we're not only always working with American allies. We need to build coalitions of countries like ourselves in the sense that we are second-tier powers that have a set of interests in a stable, rule-governed, principled, international institutionalised order, but one that may not be as liberal as we may like. Um, I'll stop there. Thanks, Nick. There's a lot in that. There's a lot in all of
0: those um, four perspectives, five if you count um, mine, which I think certainly at a basic level demonstrates just how um, thick the, the relationship is and, and how many different angles of analytical attack there are on it. Um, I'd like to come back, um, and I'm mindful I don't want to steal time from you, the audience, to have your questions uh, but I want to just get that discussion um, kick started in the order that uh, that um, the speakers came first time round. Um, starting with you, um, Rowan. And um, Rowan, obviously your, your primary focus is on on the uh, on, on China. But I thought I'd just throw you a bit of a curveball and ask you a little bit more about the Australian side of the relationship, um, because uh, as a commentator and as a journalist, you've obviously um, had a lot of. Uh, experience on that. Um, you characterise the the West as misreading uh, the growing authorisation of, uh, of Xi Jinping's uh, China. Um, do you think, was Australia any more wishful than others, do you think, in its thinking about Australia? Um, does the colouring of the economic relationship, given Australia's particular reliance, given the extremity of our geography, uh, does that also, colour um, our uh, our optimism about uh, China, or would do? Would you see it differently?
1: I think, and John mentioned this as well. I think that the uh, United States really was where they, the big misreading was, which is odd because America also contains uh, really the world's leading experts on China outside China, and. Uh, but people weren't listening. There's a a terrific book, uh, now I think 12 years old, by James Mann, called The China Fantasy, uh, still worth reading. And his book uh, then said, um, if people believe that um, uh, a a China with skyscrapers, where people are driving cars, is bound to become uh, like America, then this is just wishful thinking. And... uh, uh, so it's proved. In I think uh, in Australia's case, what's uh, what's happened is the distance is really particularly marked by uh, sections of our business community, which uh, depend very heavily on uh, on uh, China as a market, and uh, because we haven't invested in in China. Uh, our business community doesn 't really know very much about China except for maybe annual uh, five star or six star hotel visits and so uh, tend to feel uh, anything that disrupts the relationship uh, is uh, terrible and dangerous and uh, 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 and I think uh, we 're seeing something of the same. Attitude among university vice-chancellors as well in Australia. Uh, certain universities, uh, obviously not La Trobe, are more marked in this than, than others. Uh, and uh, I th- I, so I think that um, uh, what's happening is uh, that the Australian public more broadly have started to turn, have started to change. I don't know if people in the room, probably everyone here given kind of people you are, have seen this Low Institute annual poll, the 2019 poll, is quite important because it shows a, a turning. And Nick talked about uh, uh, interest first, then values, but it's interesting, I think, to see that uh, 77% of uh, people polled, it's a pretty good poll, 2,600 um, random sample, um, Said Australia should do more to resist China's military activities in our region, even if this affects our economic relationship. That's a, that is quite a watershed, in my view. So this is this is the elision of interests and values, and I think um, this is something that our business community needs to take uh, account of. And so I think Australia's had. Uh, different views at uh, different levels. We need to talk amongst ourselves. But because I started off saying this, because we've got so few people who've um, spent any time in China, I think uh, we've been too ready just to accept what we've been told, speaking notes from Chinese interlocutors and so on. And we need to think for ourselves uh, a bit we're capable of doing that in Australia, and uh, we are doing it.
0: Great. Um, Hudan, I'm especially grateful to you for being on the panel tonight because I think it's vital as part of this conversation that we do have a, a two-way conversation at a, at a basic level. And to have a view from China, I think it's very game of you um, to, be, to be up here and uh, and fielding questions um, tonight. Um, I'd also just like to ask you a little bit on the, the economic relationship which you've characterized. And I think in your piece you do reference um, the... Uh, Australian government's decision to ban Huawei from competition in, in 5G, doesn't that also um, invite a, a, a counter-accusation to China of double standards, given that China itself excludes Western social media from uh, access to, to China via the, the so-called Great great Firewall?
2: Um. But first, I'd like to thank you again for asking me to contribute and also for having me here. It's such an honor. And uh, actually, part of the reasons I came is because I know all the gentlemen here. <laughs> so <laughs> I think I'll be in safe hands. Uh, but back to your question, really, I've, I've seriously, I've never thought about it like that, just trying to, you know, just draw an analogy between those things. Because for me, I think they're really uh, two quite different things. Uh, but on the Huawei case, my viewpoint may be a little bit different from uh, quite scholars, uh, quite, quite some scholars in China. And I think the Huawei thing, the telecommunications industry, it's really um, not just about technology. It's also about security. So it's really a two-dimensional talk. And I don't think... A globalized world means we should tear down all the walls against each other. On the contrary, my observation for the past few years would be what we have seen during the past few years is more like a backlash and also a remodification of the globalized efforts during the past time in trying to redefine the border and as well as the boundaries between the countries. So, personally, um, I wouldn't shout and say that Australia did such a bad thing on Huawei. It was a, it, it was a stupid decision. Uh, I very early on sensed that it would be a no <laughs> in mid twenty eighteen. Um, because when you look at um, the government's decision in 2012 and 2013, two times on Huawei's participation in the NBN, you would immediately realize that in Australia, there has for a long time been such concern over security. Uh, so really, I mean, I, I'm not surprised with that decision.
0: Um, thanks for that, um Honest answer, uh, and we're also doubly in your debt. You're the only female speaker on the panel <laughs> tonight, so and um, thank you again. Um, John, um, you obviously talked um, extensively about values. N- Nick touched on them too. Um, there is a broader question around this, perhaps over the long term. You, you emphasise Australia's need to, to defend and live, live according to its values, but if China is going to become... Uh, as uh, important and influential uh, as as it appears, Um, and I'm thinking across all the spectrum of of the ways in which um, we're going to interact economically, strategically, um, people to people. Um, The older paradigm that the West was going to influence China uh, to become more like them begs another question, whether over the long term, what will China's influence be on Australia? And this, I think, gets to, I think, the core of of your um, uh, attachment to the importance of of values. But how do you see that playing out over the long term? Is there a risk that we actually, despite ourselves, might become rather more like
3: China than the reverse? Yes, this is a question... um that I have actually dealt with in a couple of articles. Um, Some Australians who have been promoting closer ties with China on the understanding there's nothing to be afraid of, no need for a seatbelt, basically say China's becoming like us. There's nothing to be afraid of. That's clearly not the case. The risk is that Australia will become increasingly like China. And by this I mean... Corruption will make its way as, into business processes. It's a normal and routine way of doing business. It means that the legal system will, uh, may be vulnerable to pressure of some kind or another. I mean, this is actually what people in Hong Kong are concerned about at the present time, if I may say. <clears throat> the, um, the concern of people in Hong Kong is not they don't want to be part of China. I mean, there's a small group of separatists. I don't want to speak about those. But we're looking at a million or million and a half people on the street, they're concerned that Hong Kong is becoming like Changsha or Shanghai or any other city in which rule of law no longer applies. There's no media freedom. There's no civic organisation. Churches and religions are you know, basically controlled by the state. <clears throat> and they don't want Hong Kong to go that way. Now, some years ago, um, a visiting Hong Kong delegation pointed out that Hong Kong is Australia's future unless Australia itself becomes conscious of the risks of closer alignment and engagement with China without taking due precautions. I believe that was Anson Chan made those comments during a visit here in Melbourne a couple of years ago. <coughs> now, we shouldn't forget here, we're sitting here talking about you know, the best way to do this, the best way to do that, what's the best strategy We can do that till the cows come home. Events are likely to overtake us. Things are moving very, very fast in China, in Hong Kong and in the region. I think Nick alluded to this. What we wrote a few months ago for this publication, well, still, I think, holds in principle. may not be quite up to the minute. And if events do overtake us, as they are in Hong Kong, then they're likely to affect us in the same kind of way as they are in Hong Kong. What's happening at the University of Queensland indicates that the risks that Australian universities have exposed them to is not just influence from China, it's influence to resistance from China to the way China behaves. So Hong Kong students protesting for Hong Kong at the University of Queensland. I don't think people were expecting that. And it wasn't planned, but it's because events unfold so rapidly in China um, that they are reflected here because of our close engagement very, very quickly. And so I think... The risk that Australia... I, mean, I think it's highly unlikely that Australia will, be, so to speak, become China. But unless we're very, very clear who we are, what we stand for, what institutions we value, whether the integrity of our institutions matter, the ABC, our universities, our political parties, if it doesn't matter, fine. You know, China can do as it pleases. If it does, if Australian people are concerned about this, they should raise their voices, not about China, but about Australia about our businesses, our casinos, our newspapers, our universities, our political parties and our parliamentary sovereignty. And I think that is what Australians are doing. It might seem as if we're all being critical of China, actually, or Chinese-Australians. Actually, most of the targets of criticism are very clear, whitey public figures, quite frankly, who've been caught up in this one way or the other, who are selling the China story without, without without regard to the risks. Thank you.
0: Uh, Nick, I'm grateful for that you updated your, your analysis. Um, it's a good job you weren't um, writing for an academic journal. It probably would have been even even longer out of date. We, um, you do mention in, in your piece, and, and I totally agree with you on the uh, interest-based framing from the Australian angle, but you also intriguingly refer to the need to defend red lines. So I guess that ob- begs the obvious question where would you set those red lines? And can I ask you to do that however you choose, but I'd encourage you to to not just take a national um, perspective on that, but also with your university hat on, given that we've talked about universities, where would you set red lines in terms of what you regard as unacceptable behaviour on campuses or or influence in in the relationship as we engage
4: with our um, Chinese counterpart institutions? Um, <clears throat> I think the domestic side of it's actually quite easy and I think again if you think about a campus context I mean we have rules and policies around academic freedom and all these sorts of things and the trick is to, to follow them and not feel that you know um, if 20% of student revenue comes from the PRC that that should influence what we do on campus. So I think that the trick is not so much what the red lines are it's the, it's the enforcement of the red lines it's the, it's the following of the rules but uh, and again, I think domestically, that in some respects, that argument is um, not just but the decisions about where those things are is not just easier to um, to identify where they are and what they ought to be. It's also they're also much more straightforward in terms of policing. So we can set rules that say you can invest here and not there. Um, all of that. You know, we we have these rules around expression, all of that sort of stuff. And I think that's easier. What's much harder, and which I'm, I can't pretend I have a clear answer on, is. What are red lines geostrategically in the region? What is it that China could do that we think um, is sufficiently revisionist to go beyond the pale? You know, what's the, what's the stuff over which... And then, you know, to put the the, the the really hard question, what's the stuff over which we would fight? What's the stuff over which we would... Because I think that Lowy question is one of the most weaselly-worded phrases. Um, they usually do this with... I'm a real sceptic of polling on foreign policy when you do one poll once a year... Um, I know enough about political science polling to know you've got to do lots and lots of pollings to get anything like a trend line that makes sense. But And so if you pitch a question like, do you think Australia should take military action to push back on China, even at the cost of our economic interest? Sure. Should Australians die to do this? That gets people to think a little bit more sharply about things. Um, And, you know, I was involved in... I've been involved in a couple of research projects about whether Australia should get involved in a fight over, for example... The disputes in the East China Sea um, or over Taiwan. I think the South China Sea is actually a bit of a distraction. It's, it's one where there's conflict is least likely. Um, but if... And, and you know, we, we, Xi Jinping has said um, that the Taiwan issue is not going to be left for the next generation. Now, we don't know whether that's actually true, but let's, let's, let's imagine a scenario not too far into the future in which we have a, a proper military crisis over the status of Taiwan. What, what do we do there? Um, and, but, and again, the answer will always depend on what are the circumstances under which it occurs. Um, but if there were, you know, one of the things I think is if there were an unambiguous move in which China, China took the first step um, to militarily take Taiwan... Uh, then I think that's something over which Australia needs to would need to take a stand to the point where we're willing to shed blood, uh, because that that that's a you know I would take it as a breach of international law. Now you know it's arguable what's Taiwan's status is it a state? You know most UN members don't recognise it, but you know by by all means this is this would be the invasion of another country, um, and you know that's that's a red line for the United States. And, and I think that's the issue that we need to think through when you're talking about red lines, What, and, you know, thinking a little bit extemp on this, but I think when you go outside Australia, thinking about what, is it, what are the actions um, that China could take that we would consider, uh, you know, not just we don't like it, but unacceptable to the point where we would work with others to push back. There's not lots of them, but there are a few. But, you know, I, th- I think... Um, we've really got to begin to, to think those through. Given that I've said, you know, I'm someone who's on the record saying, um, intellectually speaking, we need to adjust the regional order to, ref- to, to um, reflect the changing dispensation of power, that means we have to give some ground. Um, and the, the, the real puzzle is, how do you renegotiate that? How do you navigate these changes? Um, because historically we know renegotiating international orders is really hard and tends to only happen after very big and very nasty wars.
0: I want to turn it over to the um, audience now um can I ask you we'll take questions one by one I think we've only got one microphone but could could you please um identify yourself uh, keep your question uh as short as possible and uh, make clear who it's directed to uh and um Uh, learn from my mistake at the beginning, just wait until the microphone comes before you start speaking.
5: Uh, So I have a question for um, John. Um, So my name is Cindy, I'm an Asian Studies major from Monash University and I'm quite heavily involved in the Australia-China space. Um, So as Diane said, I've been involved with a couple of conferences like ACELS um, um, and things like ACYPI um, here in Melbourne. Um, So my question is related to a speech that the first China ambassador, um, John Fitzgerald, made back in 2017. Stephen Fitzgerald. Um, yes, yeah, <laughs> Stephen Fitzgerald. Um, and he said uh, something that really resonated with um, what you said, John, which was that uh, he acknowledged that there are inherent dangers of having different values um, and different ideological systems uh, and the need to be... Very clear about our position and what we are and our identity, but at the same time he did make the suggestion or argument that currently the mainstream narrative in Australia about China is quite is overly suspicious, uh, and that uh, it's the narratives are quite dominated by um, an intelligence perspective, um, and so with this he urged for an establishment of a dedicated diplomatic agency. Which Scott Morrison, I think, has made good on um, by funding the, uh, the National Foundation for Australia China Relations, um, which was announced um, this year, earlier this year. And so I just wanted to get your perspective on whether you agree with him um, that the mainstream narrative is um, too overly suspicious of China, um, and whether balancing that being strong against China and still engaging with them, um, how can that be achieved?
0: thank you. That was principally to John Fitzgerald but it's such an important broad ranging question I'll also open up to any other panellists who want to respond
3: John over to you first Sure. Thanks for that excellent question Um, I presume Stephen was referring to the last five years or so, the last three or four years at least and I would say the period before that Australia was unduly naive in the public discourse around China Um, And what tends to happen in public life is people move from one extreme to the other. And I think it's a process that it will settle down. Um, I was involved in some of the early writing and publishing about raising some of my concerns, and I was simply passing on concerns that were discussed with me by my old friends in the Chinese-Australian community, who, for example, said to me, I can no longer appear on 3CW in Melbourne. They won't allow me because sometimes I criticise whatever's going on and had been taken over by China Radio International. That wasn't generally public knowledge, although Rowan made uh, a point of it in some of his articles, newsworthy articles about the takeover. And then, similarly, some community organisations were being set up and taken over and acting on behalf of the consulate rather than behalf of the community. Raising those concerns publicly might appear to be alarmist, but if you don't raise them, um, it's dangerous. I mean, there's a very fine line to be walked here, particularly when it comes to us Chinese-Australian communities, that no discussion of China or the risks that China might present, my seat called matter, should in any way imply that Chinese-Australians are a risk to Australia. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about agents of the Chinese Communist Party and party state. China Radio International is part of the propaganda system of the state. It's not a Chinese-Australian thing. Now, it's true Chinese-Australians have... uh, benefited from investment from China Radio International but a whole lot of other Chinese Australians were then kicked out and no longer allowed to appear and direct broadcasts from Beijing were sort of coming out over the radio. (coughs) Now I think what we're seeing then in just bringing this to public attention, people say that's alarmist, that's concerning. No it's not, it's just a fact and if people are initially alarmed I think it's because they're initially naive Um, and (coughs) I think it should be fairly routine that we have critical commentary on China as we do every day of the United States there isn't a day passes without some you know, really um, serious criticism of issues around gun control in the United States or around what the President's up to at the present time. That shouldn't be stopped either. It's not alarmist, it's just commentary and reporting and it has a place in the public life of any democracy. Because democracies rule not by the government saying this is what we plan to do, we're going to move this way or that way with China. They listen to their communities, or at least communities should demand to be listened in relation to international relations. And similarly, the values debate. The values thing isn't something embedded in foreign policy documents. We believe in blah, blah, blah. The values are actually embedded in civic life. If we believe in democracy and freedom and rule of law, um, civic equality, this is not because it's in a foreign policy document and we're acting it out. It's because that's the way Australians expect the world to work. Now, of course, it doesn't quite work like that. And every day there are new exposures of other issues in Australia, corruption in politics and so on. This is universal. We're not. Targeting China as uniquely corrupt or anything like that. But the fact that there was no discussion about China in this respect was an oversight. I think we've seen a sensible correction. Houdan, you wanted to add something? Yeah,
2: uh... I feel that somehow uh, it's our, it's my responsibility to contribute by offering uh, our research as well. Uh, just a follow-up on what the lady said just now about the Australian narrative about China being too suspicious. Um, really, what we have found, the researchers back in China, is there's two sh- major shifts in Australia for the past two years. And one is in the government that the security forces have overwhelmed DVAD and other both basically what we have seen, the diplomatic core or those interests more associated with economic. And another one would be the shifting landscape in media and we have done a really comprehensive discourse analysis including interviews and surveys with people and we have identified a really major shift in Australia media for the past two years and we have heard from Australian scholars more moderate ones who wouldn't criticize China but who tend to give a more balanced picture about China and China's stories wouldn't get their pieces published by the Australian media. We have heard quite some instances like that. And also... um, really, I mean, about the earlier question, I know this is a question that's not discussed that much here in Australia, but among Australians in China, a lot of them really talk about this. And I did raise this question to a delegation by really leading a scholars back in China and ask them, what we are seeing right now, the security forces you know, taking the power, I mean, is this a blip or is this an ongoing trend? And really, I mean, for them, the Find a difficult to answer. Sorry. Yeah.
1: Rowan, you wanted to add yes, something? The, um, two little stories. One is um, when uh, Houdan was mentioning, we, we were both at this um, dialogue in Beijing at the end of last year, and uh, uh, members, not Houdan himself, but other members of the Chinese delegation are saying, uh, Australian media, very Critical of China, this is uh, overcritical, and so on. John Howard interrupted and said, I can assure you that if you think that anything written criti- critical that's critical of uh, Xi Jinping by uh, Australian media is uh, severe, then you haven't read the things written about me. And uh, I think he made a very good point. You know, this is. Uh, Uh, we in Australia are capable of separating, and this is what I started saying at the start, what is China, you know? China is not just the Communist Party ruling the People's Republic of China. It's much broader. I gave a a talk. A friend of mine invited me to to speak at another university in another city uh, a while ago, and uh, um, at the end, asking students there... um, any questions? This woman started by saying, woman from China, she said, why do you hate China? So I said, actually, I don't hate China. That's why I'm here. You know, I'm not being paid. I'm just uh, here to talk about the place. I really, I really enjoy Chinese people. I enjoy China. I enjoy Chinese culture. And, uh, you know, that's why I'm here. But I said... Um, if you were to, and she, I said, why do you say that? She said, well, you criticise criticised China's, uh, China's ruler. So I said, well, if you were to uh, criticise uh, Australia's Prime Minister, uh, I wouldn't say that you're being anti-Australian. In fact, many Australians would say, that's terrific. That shows how Australian you are. And, uh, you know, so it's a, it's a, a different perspective. Uh, interestingly, by the way, Uh, Other Chinese students came up to me at the end of this quietly and said, uh, we're sorry about this, but we had to keep quiet because she's the party uh, secretary for this department.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I I saw a a woman um, three rows from the back who had her hand raised. Um, Yes, you.
6: Okay, it's a marvellous talk. Thank you. I just uh, thank you, Ron, and uh, you mentioned that there's uh, so many dimensions of the China, the ethnic China, culture China, and uh, uh, political China. But uh, I've been living in Australia. I wonder why the media always is uh, one interpretation for the communist. It's like a communist China, communist party. But uh, I have the tutorial that uh, a student asked uh, like an uh, interesting question. He asked, "What made Deng Xiaoping a communist?" So Sorry. Deng Xiaoping.
0: Sorry, what? What's the? Can you get to the question?
6: What made Deng Xiaoping a communist?
1: Mm-hmm.
6: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> because this of his question. policy. Y- your question.
1: You want me to answer that question? What made Deng Xiaoping a My point
6: is like the Communist Party and the Deng's leadership and the Mao's leadership, the policy is so
0: different. Is that for anyone in the panel in particular?
6: uh, My point is like media, why they interpret or broadcasting or introduce China is Communist China or Communist Party, just one, it's like treat them as one entity.
0: Okay, thank you. So it's a clearer question about the media treatment of China and as a particularly in communist mm. terms. Who would like to respond to that? I
1: think it's a pity if that's obviously, as I was saying, China is much more. But uh, Xi Jinping, so if we go forward to Xi Jinping's new era now, he, he has said, you know, North, South, East, West, and Centre, the Communist Party rules all. You know, this is a. <laughs> This is a very important organisation. Nothing can happen in China without uh, the party knowing and approving. This is quite... uh, makes it unique in the world. And so I think it's hard to avoid if we're talking about the People's Republic, we're talking about the Chinese government. I think quite hard to leave it out. Uh, Nick?
4: Just a a couple of quick things. I mean, one is this is common everywhere in the news where countries get simplified, reified, black box treatment, that sort of thing. Think about the United States. Coverage of the United States is Trump 24-7. This is a country of 300 million that's know, you know, it's, you know it's the, and our colleagues up at the US Study Centre in, in uh, Sydney run a whole program that's called Meanwhile in the Rest of America. You know, so, so I think this is not alone to the, to China. And then I think because over the past couple of years as John said, you know, with the sort of pendulum has swung, um, and there is a lot of focus on these issues and they have a kind of rhetorical richness around them. If you're, you know, if you're in traditional media, you're desperate for any kind of click. So, any sort, so, so it, it's sort of par for the course in some respects in terms of media. And, and some of the things is, is our responsibility as universities, as um, contributors to public debate, is to constantly remind you know, people about the complexity of China. And I, you know, I often find when I, in my writing... You know, you you don't want to say China. You want to say the PRC. You want to say the CCP. Um, but there's only so many different times you do can do that. It gets clunky, you know. And so you want your sentence to flow neatly. So you end up saying China and the, the Chinese. And so it's so we understand how it can happen. And the challenge is constantly trying to contextualize that and to provide this precisely the sort of point that Rowan
3: was making. John, you want to just, just say briefly say on something? a historical point. I think the term communist China was used in the time of Mao Zedong. In the time of, Mao, of Deng Xiaoping, it stopped being used, as if to illustrate your point. People didn't refer to communist China in the Deng Xiaoping era. They referred to China under Deng Xiaoping or the reforming China. If the term is coming back, it's because Xi Jinping has basically said, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the next Mao Zedong. You mustn't forget the, the origins of the party. The Boang Chusin... Phrase actually refers to the 1921 First Party Congress and the Declaration of First Party Congress, which basically says we're Marxist Leninists, we're here to take over the world. And he says, you know, we mustn't forget this. Um, So the word's coming back again, and and with good reason. The other thing is this, I guess. The Communist Party is an organisation, and as an organisation, it controls everything. And you know the Organisation Bureau and the Propaganda Bureau dominate um, personnel appointments and all media... And so to say, not to talk about the Communist Party as an organisation is an enormous omission because it is the great, the most powerful organisation on earth, probably.
7: Um, hello, I'm Aaron Soans from the Australian APEC Study Centre. Uh, so just picking up on um, John and Nick, um, I guess I'm concerned about uh, Australia and the US uh, compromising their values in the way they respond to China. So, for example... Um, on investment policy. Um, So I think the difference between the Huawei case and social media is that there are international agreements around investment policy, um, uh, whereas that doesn't apply to services like social media. Uh, And uh, arguably, there could be a rules-based framework where countries uh, sort of guarantee that security uh, in exchange for um, uh, allowing those um, allowing that investment to come through. Um, uh, Also, the U.S.-China trade dispute seems to be settled, trying to be settled outside the rules-based framework. Uh, So how can Australia bring the U.S. and China on board into uh, a multilateral approach uh, rather than sort of these power games that we seem to be...
0: Okay, thank you. I'll throw that to Nick first, but I'd also be interested in Houdan's uh, opinion on that. So, um, Nick, Um, does Australia have a a role The
4: short answer is with extreme difficulty, um, because I think, in in fact, from if you take a narrowly kind of rules based approach, I mean, I think the way Australia has handled um, the question of PRC investment in China or other investment, sorry, in Australia or other investment in Australia, it's been Fairly clear, fairly transparent. A few, a few clunky ones around firm and communications, but on the whole, the rules are clear. We largely follow them. There's a, bit of, there's a lot of discretion once you get above a certain point um, when you get into sensitive areas. Where I think, What I think you're getting at is concerns that we've got around the politicisation of the economic relationship between the US and China um, and the risk either of a kind of return of mercantilism on a high level or potentially even worse, where the US and China strike some sort of set of rules that are purely in their interest and the rest of the world has to pay the price. I think the problem for, a, for an Australia or, or everyone else is it's really hard to have influence on those two, particularly at this point in time. You know, If you had an, a normal, quote-unquote, normal American administration in which the policy process was working a little more, um, conventionally, uh, then I think we'd know how to get in. We'd know how to have influence. We'd work together. You know, we'd get together with the Japanese and the British, and the you know the Canadians and you know the the, the Liberal do-gooders, and make the case around the importance of multilateralism and positive sum trade. And there might be some way of of um, influencing this. I think the capacity on trade, and it's the one issue I think for for, for Trump. This is the one on which he isn't going to move. You know, he is. This is a sort of hardwired belief he's had for decades. Um, And so trade, I think you're right, is the one that's most worrying, but I think it's the one over which we've got the least influence. What have we done so far? I mean, for what it's worth, CPTPP um, has happened, contrary to almost everyone's expectations. It's a bit like, I always forget, is it in Passover where you leave the seat for for Elijah in case he shows up? Um, we've got, that's, that's what CP, CTPPP's got, you know, the seat in case the Americans come back to their senses and can join in. Um, but that's the best we can do. We can get together with others, set up frameworks, and and constantly try to get in the ear of the Americans and um, and the PRC. But at, at the current moment, and particularly as that bilateral kind of contest is so charged, I think the prospects of that are, are limited hudan you 've been quite
0: critical of australia 's um, restrictions on on investment from china in in recent months and years, um, but to turn it around isn 't Australia actually a, a useful partner in that sense being more firmly attached to multilateral trade orders uh, and firmly uh, in in the Asian trading sphere uh, doesn't that actually uh, isn 't that a plus point from from china 's point of view?
2: I'd like to clarify uh, two things, one, uh, Huawei's case is not really investment. (laughs) <laughs> it bids for participation in the projects so that's mostly right. what Huawei would do is sell its equipment, and it is possible that it would bring some financing, which is you know quite common in some, in some construction cases like that. So that's that that partly explains why, in some sense, it can fall into the category of investment, but it's not typical investment really. So that partly leads to the second um, misconception I want to talk about is that. Australia turning down Huawei for 5G participation is not really based on rules, but it's more about deciding on whether a foreign investor can invest in a certain country. It's really that really falls into the jurisdiction of that country itself, and we don't really have, you know, commonly accepted or everyone signed rules on that. So that's why I wouldn't I wouldn't say. Back to your question, I wouldn't say that's that's that. I mean, if you have concerns, then that's that's all right.
3: Just Just one word. This is a very important point, that um, the Huawei case is not a case of investment, so it doesn't involve FIRB. (coughs) Nevertheless, it is critical infrastructure. And under the um, amendments to the legislation governing FERB introduced after the Darwin episode, where Darwin Ports was... Which is critical infrastructure was invested in without um, processes in place to govern that decision <coughs> um, new regulations or rather um, the regulations under which FERb operates were revised to define critical to add critical infrastructure and to define it and it includes communications now this is not investment but the same definition around critical infrastructure now appears to apply to markets and that 's within market regulation i don 't think Australia has stepped outside the bounds of normal market rules in deciding that areas of critical infrastructure are a special case um, and that the ordinary rules of trade don't necessarily apply. Uh, Gentleman in the
0: suit in the second row. Uh,
8: My name is Frank Ron. I'm a publisher of a Chinese newspaper in Melbourne, Tiananmen Times. Earlier this month, in the United Nations, uh, 22 countries they made a joint statement to condemn the policy of the Chinese Communist regime on the Xinjiang, has abused the human rights in China, in Xinjiang. Most of these countries are democratic countries, including Australia and New Zealand. But a few days later, the Chinese Communist government, they organized the other 33 countries to make a joint statement to support the policy of the Chinese Communist regime in Xinjiang and in the abuse of human rights in China. And that's one I want to... How to condemn... Uh, give your comment on this one.
0: I, the question was about Xinjiang and particularly the, the two... Uh, well, there, there were two sets of, of, of country-level responses to that. I didn't hear a specific... Um, question to Australia, but would anyone from the panel like to, to, to respond to that?
1: I, I talked about um, weaponizing uh, uh, China's, weaponizing its uh, economic heft. Uh, I think this is what you're talking about, is really what's happening here. Um, on the whole, is uh, um, I read the list of those countries and... Uh, in our region you know, Cambodia Laos Myanmar, these are countries which have become very dependent economically on China, and so it 's expected that uh, they will as they see it um, this isn 't a very expensive thing for them to do. they will uh, line up as uh, fits their interests you know um, we 've talked a bit about interests and values uh, that uh, their economic interests are best served. Uh, In such cases, particularly if uh, Beijing really presses them and says it's very important for us, it's 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 a matter of our honour and whatever. We want you to support us in this vote, and they do so. They do so because uh, they uh, they sense that uh, it might not be stated, but they sense that uh, their economies are at stake here.
4: Look, I'd add just really quickly on that. Um, It reminds me a bit of uh, following the arbitral tribunal ruling uh, in relation to the Philippines, sort of South China Sea Disputes, where um, China went to great lengths to publicise the many, many, many countries that agreed with it. And it's a salutary reminder that many countries in the world are not democracies that are ruled by by states that have no interest in human rights and actually have a clear interest in supporting the PRC. So that, you know, it's... If, if you want to play the court of public opinion internationally, it's a complex game. And I'm, I'm not saying it's right, but I think it's in, in you know, the, the sort of quote-unquote liberal international order. It's not especially liberal in many parts of the world.
3: Just to follow on from that point, <clears throat> um, after that vote, the second vote, the Chinese government announced, we have now changed the meaning of human rights! Exclamation <laughs> mark! They didn't realise the irony of what they were saying. This is the new rule-setting game that China is playing, that Nick alluded to, <clears throat> and, while well, we must make room for China to reset the rules, <clears throat> undermining the fundamental principles of the UN Declaration on Human Rights. What it means to police human rights is not one of those. We would normally count as a reasonable uh, rule change.
1: And when... Um, uh, uh, quite often it's said China needs to have a role in uh, uh, having to uh, rewrite or rework Multilateral institutions because it didn 't have a role uh, in their setting up, and indeed the public uh, this is a good case uh, Chinese, um, Chinese lawyers played a very prominent role in drawing up the uh, United nations uh, uh, universal human rights uh, values, uh, but these were lawyers who were deputed from the Chinese government at the time, which is the uh, Gomindang government pre-1949. So uh, this is why which China is quite an important question. But, of course, uh, the PRC always <laughs> can, like all governments, want it both ways, because when it comes to the nine-dash line, which defines the South China Sea, that was also drawn up by a KMT official. But that's regarded as... Uh, Uh, Holding what?
0: (laughs) Uh, Two gentlemen. Uh, You're going to have to be very brief. You've got maximum of 30 seconds. Please make sure it's a question. Uh, First, the second row, and then in the third row. We'll take them together. My name is Suki. I'm a student of international relations. The ABC is Australia's most trusted public broadcaster. and It is a soft power of Australia. Why is it banned in China? When Australia is not banning Chinatown or Chinese New Year... why, Why is it
9: what on China? Why ABC is banned in China.
0: Banned. Banned, Banned in China. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. And then, if you could pass it back.
9: Uh, my name is Tenzin Kansa. I'm the president of Tibetan Community of Victoria. My question is related to Tibet issue. which is you know, China uh, think that Tibet issue is inalienable part of China. Whereas I say that, you know, is the ineligible, ineligible issue of China, which is not gonna escape. And we are alive, and we will fight uh, until the uh, the dialogue will, uh, you know, restored. So my question is, you know. Um, Tibet's been forcefully and illegally occupied uh, in 1959 and in the last 60 years we're, we've been we're, suffering we're trying question, to, yep, sorry question,
0: to interrupt but, yep. but we have to keep, limit the time and we're specifically interested in Australia-China relations so if yes. you have a question could you relate yes, it to I'm, Australia-China I'm relations?
9: Citizen, and I can't go to Tibet is where I'm from and I can't go to meet my family it's been like you know uh, so many years and I can't see my family I understand so, that. So, so I'm Australian citizen. That's so what's the I'm question? question is, will, my question goes to who, that will you be able to influence the Chinese official to negotiate or dialogue with its Tibetan envoys to issue, solve this Good issue? Time.
0: Okay, thank you.
9: Um,
0: so the question was to anyone on uh, the position of the ABC. Again, a lot of questions on media, but the question about whether the ABC
3: is banned in, in China.
0: Um, anyone from the panel care to respond to that?
3: There was a a period um, between what 2014-15 and 2017 when it wasn't banned and that's because the ABC agreed to do away with its Chinese language news and current affairs unit so that it wouldn't say anything offensive in the Chinese language When that was done away with the ABC was accessible through um, Shanghai Media Group platform uh, based in Shanghai so anyone could see it um, when um, the ABC, following Media Watch and others reporting on this, um, indicated this was a betrayal of editorial principles in the ABC, why are you going to ch- shut down your Chinese <coughs> language community voice in order to appease, or in order to secure a deal in China? The ABC was compelled to reinstate that, and once it was reinstated, it was banned again. So the conditions for doing business in China are not consistent with Australian values, which is to say, the Chinese Australian community has a right to read ABC material in Chinese language. <coughs> there are editorial principles governing freedom. They cannot direct them not to criticise the Communist Party, and so on. It's a clear case, I think, in which values were compromised, which led to a beneficial outcome, and which, in the end of the ABC, in the end, um, disgraced ABC management. Um, Don, who did you want to say yeah, something? I, I,
2: I try to. <laughs> I try to. Um, it's an interesting question why ABC is banned. Uh, I think another question you ask is why the Australian or Sydney Morning Herald not banned in China. Well, it definitely shows something about the ABC, and I think um, that's, that's that we can we can start from there. But let me take a step back, and I want to remind uh, our audience that. Somehow it's really important to explore why instead of making a judgment. You know, can't say, anyway, that you did this wrong? Why did you do that? You're being evil again. I mean, <laughs> no one would do something for, for, for no reason. And what I want to warn you is that, really, I mean, if you have the chance to go to China and really understand the situation, they're a huge country with such diversity, 56 ethnic groups, and also 1.4 million, four billion people. You would easily understand, like all the all the other countries in the world, China is facing a lot of challenges in its governance and the social media and all this, you know the emergence of internet has been a very important one. So I would say, taking a step back, that you would see learning curve for everyone, for every country, including China.
0: Thank you. I'm afraid that's all, with um, apologies to those who didn't get a chance to ask their question, um, we have to wrap up um, the event here. Yeah, I'm sorry, well that, that itself is uh, something that you're, uh, that's the answer to your, your question. If it wasn't answered, it wasn't answered. Um, the, the, the issues are tough. The dialogue um, is obviously going to be one that's on, ongoing. Our attempt at La Trobe Asia in airing these events uh, at, is to make sure that the, the hard issues are, are tackled. And I think our, I'd like to thank our panelists, firstly, tonight, for being courageous in, in uh, giving up their time, but also being honest and upfront about their, their opinions. Also, to you in the audience, give us your feedback about the, the brief. As I say, this is not an issue that 's going to go away it 's multi layered multi dimensional and in fact it 's going to define i think a lot of australia 's foreign policy bandwidth for the foreseeable future, uh, as John Fitzgerald said, Democracies uh, don 't just have uh, a fee from above; they do depend on uh, feedback from below and grassroots so uh, in, in our small way, and you and your, yours, I think can play a part in that process. ladies and gentlemen, please. Um, Thank the panellists tonight, and thank you.